Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, the Yugambeh people, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. My name is Nicole Bennett and I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We're one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So let's take a minute from our busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode seven for 2022. With the cleanup from the devastating floods in southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales still very much underway, there's been lots of discussion about this natural disaster, how it can happen, again, only 11 years after the last major floods, and what we can do to prevent or minimise it happening again in the future. So when a flooding expert started posting some very thought-provoking pieces on LinkedIn, I was intrigued. And then Martin reached out to me and offered his time to come on this podcast and help us understand urban flooding better. So a little about Martin. Martin Rushani Zamari is a stormwater and flooding engineer with a vast range of experience focused mainly in the development and construction space. Martin has managed teams of flood engineers both here in Australia and Vietnam, delivering projects to government and private sector as well as mum and dads. He currently runs a niche consulting firm specialising in flood assessment and stormwater management, as well as working part-time as a senior engineer mentoring the next generation of water engineers at SMEC. Martin is a chartered and registered professional engineer, an RPEQ, with a dual degree in civil engineering and business management. Martin's interest in floodplain management and flood awareness has grown increasingly after seeing those affected in 2011 and the more recent 2022 floods in Brisbane, as well as frequent flooding during his time living in Vietnam. He has seen all sides of the flood discussion and really hopes by the end of his career, he's been able to make a positive change towards better flood risk management. Welcome to the podcast, Martin. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Yourself, Nicole? I'm really well, thank you. And thanks so much for agreeing to have this discussion with me today. It's obviously very topical and something that is very close to your heart. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, thanks for having me as well. That's all right. And I think it's really important that we use this disaster, if we can kind of use disasters, as a way of reflecting and learning and doing better in the future, you know, because I think... Um, you and I, you know, have, have had discussions ahead of recording this podcast and we share, you know, this common goal of improving our communities. And I think with some of your, your knowledge and expertise, you know, we can hopefully understand how we can reduce the risk of future uh, flood emergencies. So I, I was so keen when I came across your profile on LinkedIn, you, I first saw this post that you shared, which was, right in the midst of, um, you know, the flood emergency at the beginning of March. And there was a, a discussion that you sort of launched there around, you know, some pretty inappropriate actions of a journalist who was asking very pointed questions towards the Wyvernhoe Dam operator during the midst of, of this emergency. And, and seemingly to me, 
uh, journalist was kind of pointing the blame or pointing the finger at the dam operator and I guess claiming, you know, why wasn't the dam released earlier? Why wasn't water released earlier? You know, and, and your post attracted a lot of support and a lot of discussion, which was great about all manner of flood emergency matters. And, you know, I just wondered, wanted to know what made you speak out in that moment? I guess I was uh, like obviously appalled as a, as a flood engineer sitting there. Just, we're on the other side of that that conversation, always trying to um, inform members of the public and try and educate them about about flooding um, risks and how to prepare themselves. And um, also, obviously, the dams. You know, that's just one component of of the floodplain management and emergency management procedures. And it's um, it was a bit disheartening to see that everyone's focus is back on the dams as soon as we have a rain event. And obviously it's a very politically fueled journalist and also the timing of it is obviously very interesting. But I think, yeah, it just, it just appalled me and sort of, I guess it was more of like a, let's, you know, let's rally up the engineers and go, well, you know, we can't always blame the engineers or the operators for all the disasters that occur. But, yeah, it's, and also, I guess, as an industry, we typically were engineers aren't exactly the most extroverted people and we typically don't don't speak up enough, I think. And um, over time, our our voices are being, you know, reduced and all, all, all the uh, misinformation that's going around, it's just, it's, it's obviously <laughs> getting worse. Over yeah. the years, flooding is just something I feel that people need to understand. You know, even even if we were to um, integrate that into our um, childhood and school systems to understand how how it works and how to live harmoniously with the floodplain, that's one that's one issue. And even as as adults have a better understanding, I mean, it's community consultations and the message the messages that get out there through communication. Just well, obviously, it needs to improve because I think there's a serious misunderstanding of of um, flooding. So yeah, yeah, I agree. And look, I'm a you know I'm a qualified town planner, and I still struggle with flooding. You know, I've yeah. been around many flood engineers and and have sort of you know heard them speak, and and it's still an area that I would like to know a bit more about. Which is why when you reached out, I thought you know, um, that this is great. This is a, such a great opportunity to to learn a little more and, and understand yeah. a little more about something that is only becoming more frequent. And, and, you know, since we sort of first spoke about recording this episode, you know, we've had another rainfall event, yeah, you know, right. more communities affected. So let's, that's I've right. got a few questions for you yeah. that I'd like to sort of get into. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm sorry, they're hard ones. So <laughs> yeah, I love the hard ones. That's, uh, <laughs> let's go awesome. for it. Okay, so I guess, you know, like we've, we've just mentioned, you know, the recent flood emergency in Queensland and New South Wales, it, it's really devastated towns and cities, you know, throughout the east coast of Australia. So my first question is, why are so many of our urban settlements so susceptible to devastating flood impacts? The simple reason is, uh, I guess, us, uh, we settled here. We, <laughs> on, on the floodplain, um, the settlers have chosen to be close, you know, to the river systems. It was the it's the best way to I guess sustain life and I mean before all the technological advancements that we've had over time if you look at all the major cities of the world we've we've placed our settlements and colonies and whatnot around river systems or just to be closer to the water sources um, especially near the coast 
uh, you look at uh, like Brisbane's obviously one example, but you know you look at all the major cities of the world. You got like all at London and uh, Paris and Shanghai, Cairo, which has the Nile. <laughs> um, and and that being said, they're actually trying to build a new Cairo city away from. Cairo, but you know it makes it, it made sense at some point throughout history. It was you know it's perfect for food and you know you had fishing, fertile lands with high water tables for farming. You know at the end of the day, water sustained life. So you know without um, thinking about how it rains or where it floods, they were just thinking at the time let's live as close as possible to the water sources. And then yeah, and then look over time to, in, in Australia at least we. We've had a much better understanding, especially I think like in Brisbane, for example, since um, the 18, 1893 floods, um, we had a better understanding of where it's flooding or especially the river. Yeah, over time, development occurred. We, you know, developers knew that the public wanted to live, you know, at waterfront properties or ocean view properties. So, you know, the, the, to, to develop in the floodplain and live in close to the water is, was still, it, it, it's, it was desirable by the public. I mean, look at look at Gold Coast, right? Gold Coast, it's pretty much the Australian version of Venice um, in some way. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, like, at the end of the day, the sad part of it is that when the urban settlers arrived uh, in Australia, uh, Brisbane, for example, um, you know, they were warned by the Aboriginals who've, you know, been on the land for, you know, thousands of years. They had historical recollections of where it's, where it's flooded on the floodplain. And, you know, they obviously didn't listen and went ahead and developed around the floodplain. And yeah, we might have had better flood resilience now, um, if we yeah. had listened back then, um, uh, which is obvious. This is obviously historical issues. Yeah, um, developing the floodplain. Now we're living, obviously, in a very different world to even say a, a century ago. Um, we've got you know technology and information, all the, all the data that we collect from rainfall, meteorological data. We run hydrologic models, hydraulic models. We capture topographies, you know, through lidar surveys and um, calibrate floods and. Like through all this um, information and um, and data, we we've, we've got all we've got all the information. Um, and yeah, look, I think um, we we know where to build, we know how to prepare, we know what creates impacts um, for certain events. You know, we we still have a framework of design events we work to. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously a um, a you know a current planning and development issue that's it's going to be around forever and um and obviously it it varies across australia different states different um local government authorities i'd say in queensland i'd say we'd ha- we we have a pretty good planning system um i mean as a as a flood practitioner that you know works in this day in and day out i can tell you a lot i can tell you that we do get scrutinized a lot about mm. um flood levels um risks impacts um, for any form of development um, or or redevelopments, um, and look, it's rightfully so. Um, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and like if anything, our floodplain development and planning process is only getting uh, it's getting more stringent. So you know, anyone who takes aim at the whole development industry for causing causes of flooding, and I mean, in more recent times, it's, yeah. it's a bit it's a little misinformed, I guess, in that sense. You know, that being said, there is private development in the floodplain. 
And there's also public infrastructure, which is designed to minimize the flooding in the floodplain where, where available. But I think overall, the, the, the public opinion at the moment is that development in the floodplain needs to cease and we need to build more infrastructure to protect, to protect us from um, flooding. Yeah, exactly. And I just want to pick up on that point that you say that, you know, we're going to have to deal with flooding in our urban areas forever. You know, I think what I hear there is that it's a it's a historical decision. You know, it was driven by our early, early settlers that, you know, we're, we're sort of seeking floodplains because that's where, you know, the best crops would grow from an agricultural perspective. So, you know, but, you know, as you say there, that the public opinion is that kind of engineers solved this through, you know, levees and dams. And I guess my next question relates to that because, you know, I, I think there's that sort of public consensus that we just want these pieces of infrastructure, levees and dams to protect our cities and towns. But we've seen, you know, in these recent flood events that this infrastructure hasn't fully protected our communities. And, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to pose it to you. Why? Like, why can't engineers solve this with infrastructure? And, and do you think we've become too reliant on major infrastructure to solve these challenges? And, and if that's the case, then what's the long-term solution? Mm, no, definitely. I guess, first of all, it's uh, levees and dams. They're not there to fully protect us from the flooding, right? So, I mean, levees are built um, to protect us from smaller events, from the more frequent events. And, you know, in some parts of the world, in rare cases, they can be built from larger events. You know, dams dams are built for water storage primarily, um, and we put them up in the upstream catchments. For us in Queensland, uh, we've, we've got these dams that have, you know, a large flood mitigation component, which everyone obviously knows about. <laughs> the um, the major pe- the major issue though with um, both of these pieces of infrastructure is that all, they they provide a false sense of security to people um, because they totally. only yeah they only um, mitigate or as you know some people say it takes the cream off the top of the peak floods, but it doesn't fully protect us against all the, all the events. I guess starting with levees, look, they aren't, they aren't the best solution. They cost a lot to build, especially as you go higher to provide better protection. They are, they're typically, um, they're detrimental to the environment. Um, they get, you know, typically they get built in ecologically sensitive areas. Uh, they're hard to maintain they're from both like a, a cost and, and labor perspective. You got, um, like I was reading about, they, they got animals that burrow burrow through the den, uh, through the, sorry, through the levees all the time. Um, so that's, they got to go and check them out all the time, make sure that there's no areas where susceptible to, to breaking down. And yeah, most importantly, you might save like the city or town that has a levee, but typically these, you know, these, these flows, they get displaced elsewhere into the floodplain. So in some instances, it becomes a levee war, um, with, you know, which city can get funded the best to protect their own backyard without getting into Australia's um, <laughs> Australia's issues. Say, like, America's got some great case examples um, yeah, right. where uh, they've got lower socioeconomic towns that were made much, much worse off within the river floodplain because a town that was upstream could build a levee and they just push the problem um, elsewhere in the smaller events. Uh, so imagine that that downstream town experienced more frequent flood flooding issues. There's actually a similar concepts as well in, in Vietnam. This happens a lot where whoever's got the most money builds up higher, 
because um, you know in Vietnam in the streets they've got they've got drainage issues. So whoever can build up and push the water away from their property, it just pushes it out onto someone else who doesn't have the money to build up higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and then look as for like dams again, false sense of security. Um, at least to the psyche that you know we, that people believe dams will protect us in all events. Um, you know this is a, this a prominent issue in southeast Queensland. Uh, look, when like like for example the latest floods that occurred. You know I was I was in the street listening to people. Uh, they were worried about dam releases and some, like people actually believe that the dam releases were causing the flooding. You know I, I mean the the media riles up people since day one about their management and practices um, to the point that those people forget that we actually just had a major amount of rain downstream of those dams. So, you know, the southeast Queensland um, dam operators, they cops it hard by the, you know, the politically fueled media, as always. But at the end of the day, they have procedures and a manual to follow during these events. So post-floods as well, the public... The uninformed public are placing emphasis on bigger dams for flood mitigation. You know, some even are saying we should be using the flood mitigation component uh, to capture more water for water supply. And so, you know, everyone everyone wants it both ways, right? But yeah. not many understand the implications of each of the scenarios. Like, if you if you build for higher water supply capture, I mean, besides the additional costs of like, construction operation, we reduce the natural flows back into the river system. So yeah. You know, as humans, we we constantly thinking, oh, how can we capture the water? But we don't really realize that we'll be creating additional harm to the environment doing that. You know, you got groundwater recharge, you got ecological damage. Ecological damage, for example, isn't really very quantified, and yeah. typically, if it is, it's forgotten about when you know political leaders are making decisions or proposing funding for for infrastructure. You know, if if and then the other on the other side of the coin, if we build for uh, like higher for flood mitigation, well, it's like what happens when the the dam is full from you know an ongoing few weeks of rain, for example, from upstream areas, um, or if we had to release the water at an inconvenient time um, when the flows could coincide with another downstream catchment. You know, we in fact you'd be you could you could potentially exacerbate the peak flooding downstream. Uh, even worse, you have the dam collapse scenario, which is, you know, that's that's the catastrophic event, and which is, would be, would be worse than what what occurs now or has occurred, for example. So, look, I think we as as human beings, like, we want to believe we can we can harness Mother Nature and the devastating forces, but we're not exactly wanting to accept that we you know we live on a floodplain and figure out how to live with it or, you know, in the worst case, permanently move away from it. I mean, at the moment, to be honest, as a society, where like I, I talk to members of the public every day and um, who live in floodplains and, you know, the, they barely understand different types of flooding. And I think this is something that needs to be communicated to us better as um, adults and um, especially in parts of Australia where we are susceptible to multiple types of floods. Yeah, absolutely. And it just sounds to me like we're working against Mother Nature. You know, we're working against our natural environment and, you know, trying to hold back the water with these these mm. pieces of infrastructure. So, 
Yeah, really interesting perspective there. And I think it's, I think that psychological, you know, idea that you speak of that, you know, people feel protected or they feel safe that these, you know, that levy, the, the levy or the dam will, will stop the flooding. Um, that's yeah. kind of a major issue because as you say, they're not designed to protect against these major flood events. They're there to protect against kind of the, the more frequent events that, that happen, you know, year on year. That's right. Uh, and to be fair, in some cases, like in Lismore, for example, it has, um, but then obviously, yeah. you know, it, you get the bigger events that come along as well. So, yeah, it, 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 I guess in some ways some levies do do their jobs in that sense, but there's obviously too much too much reliance from the public uh, or, or push from the public to build higher levies always. Yeah, okay. Um, the other bit I'd like to just get from you is this whole idea of one in 100 year event. Can you just explain to, to me and to everyone listening kind of the definitions around that and why we see, you know, why we've seen, you know, two one in 100 year events. I know that's kind of not the current lingo, but that's definitely the kind of round the table lingo that people use. And you kind of think, oh, I might not even see one of those in my lifetime. I might not live to 100. But yeah, I'm just keen just for you to quickly explain those those definitions to everyone. Uh, I think to put it as simply as possible, it really is. It comes out, this is all about percentages, you know, one in 100. And then the part year after is what catches up um, a lot of people because they think it's, it happens in once in a hundred years, but it's actually it's 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 the equivalent of of one percent chance of it occurring every year. So you know we've we've moved forward as an industry. I know that the ARI terms are still constantly being used, but we've moved to an, a, another system called which sorry ARI is annual recurrence interval. Sorry, as as okay. explain that, but yeah, a- your, annual re- annual recurrence intervals. Recurrence intervals. Okay, so that's the one in one hundred. That's an annual recurrence interval. Correct, and so that's that was what like what's been used in the past, and we've moved on to a what we call the annual exceedance probability. So AEP, so you see what like a 1% AEP is equivalent to a 1 in 100 year ARI, right? Okay. But we've moved on to these probability terminologies. And, and I mean, at the moment, you can see the media still hasn't caught on to it and that we're still having to deal with um, old terminology and and a bit of sensationalism, uh, sensationalist journalism consistently, but... Well, like one of the best ways to think about it is in in a in an eighty year lifespan, um, you'll see a one percent AEP, so something that we would we would have called the one in one hundred year ARI. There's a nineteen percent chance you'll see two one percent AEPs in your life in mm. your eighty year life. I know that probably sounds a bit hard, but um, essentially, it's it's a much higher probability than what what you probably what most people think and yeah and you know people I, I get it a lot from people from the, like the members of the public who call me and go oh i've only i've never seen a one in 100 year in my life or something like that yeah so um, we need to change how people think about um the terminology obviously but it's it's, yeah. it's a challenge it's a very difficult challenge our industry is consistently facing yeah, no, thank you for explaining that. And the other the other one I'd like to just 
sort of talk about is the different types of flooding, you know, and I think you've mentioned a few already in our discussion, you know, there's kind of the stormwater or the drainage issues, you know, Mm. and, and there's kind of these river floods and flash floods and, you know, local floods. And we kind of hear all these different types of floods. And I don't know whether people realize that they're, they're very different. And, and, you know, I'd just like to, for you to kind of explain what are the main types of floods that we need to be aware of and how do they affect our, our urban environments differently? Yeah, good question. I think the four types of flooding that I always think about, and I think Brisbane, Brisbane City probably sums it up the best, is we've got overland flooding or flash flooding, creek flooding, river flooding, and storm tide, which is a more coastal. So like, for example, on a small scale, you have um, ponding that occurs in depressions, um, which eventuate into moving flow. So like overland flooding, um, which occurs over land or in, in a perfect system, it should be going into our roads to, to a safe extent. Flash flooding, so flash flooding can be pretty high risk in some cases. Um, you don't have time to prepare for them, hence the word flash flooding. And historically, like badly developed, I'll say badly, badly developed areas, <laughs> you see overland flow paths through properties. Um, and this is, you know, typically a result of um, bad planning practices, I guess, a lack of understanding of catchments back then, or in more recent times, it's typically a, a drainage deficiency in that area. And, you know, it's not always everyone thinks, oh, council needs to fix all these issues, but, you know, to get drainage underneath people's properties or even to upgrade drainage is, is it's a very expensive process. Um, and maintenance and asset maintenance is an issue. Um, typically, overland flooding issues, when um, we hear about it or see it, it's because of blockage and debris of the um, the stormwater systems, and that's usually the, the, the major culprit and contributor to the overland flooding that occurs. And that's yeah, usually a bit more unexpected um, when that occurs. And then look, the overland flow paths, they typically, they drain through the stormwater systems, roads or through lands, and Eventually, they reach into a waterway system, um, such as a creek. You know, and a creek creek peak flooding occurs typically. You know, within it can happen within an hour, and in some catchments, it happens in a few hours and um, longer, depending on where you are on the catchment as well. In terms of property damage and risk to lives, it it does start to climb um, compared to overland flooding, um, but the pro of overland versus creek is creek you typically have some you know more time to prepare and evacuate from it then these creeks and tributaries they eventually contribute to to the rivers and create river flooding so you know if you've had a catchment that's been rained on for extensive periods for, for you know decent amounts of rain um, which we've seen recently they typically take much longer to reach the peak especially in downstream areas so one pro of it is you have greater evacuation times and, you know, that's when you start seeing, you know, with BOM and SES and um, all the flood forecasting companies and whatnot, they've all got time to prepare and and understand and provide, you know, send out texts and get the message out, which is good. And, yeah, look, I think in that sense it's good because, you know, you've got time to prepare against the peak depending on how high it gets, obviously. But as we've seen in, you know, 2011, this year, 74, 
1893, it, it's created significant damage, like Brisbane River flooding, it's created significant damage and, um, you know, there's major disruptions, like socially, uh, economically, and um, even more so, I think, psychologically. I think 2011 was uh, a flood that really highlighted the, the psychological damage that it creates on, on the public. There's, you know, I've read about people who still suffer from PTSD from the floods. You know, the impacts to are very real, and it's something that isn't really easily quantified. Yeah, you know, totally. We're flood engineers. We do the numbers of what, how the flood moves and what events affect where, but there's more to it, obviously, than beyond that. Oh, and a term I heard recently was flood fatigue. Yeah, flood fatigue is a real thing as well. Yeah, there's, there's people I've spoken to in the industry who are a part of even the um, emergency services. They they suffer terribly from flood fatigue. It's, you know, when you're working a week, 14-hour days for a week, it, it'll it'll catch up to you. Also, sorry, there's storm-type flooding as well, which is um, another emerging type of flooding. It's coastal-type flooding. It, it's If you live close to the coastline or low-lying areas, you know, you you are uh, affected by that, but obviously the potential changes in climate and rainfall intensity. But yeah, look, there's it's something that's going to get worse over time. So that's also another aspect to consider. Yeah. Okay. So lots of different types of flooding, and they all have a different response, and we sort of need to be aware that they, you know, can converge at different times. And just because mm-hmm. you've seen one type of flooding in your time living somewhere doesn't mean that's kind of how it's always going to play out, I guess. That's um, right. So I'm just, I, I just want to move on to another question around, you know, how we respond, and you know, the solution to reducing the future risk of flood emergencies to these different types of flooding. You know, when we think about, you know, rebuilding and build back better has been sort of something that uh, mm. is bandied around, and, and I think it's a great idea. You know, but, you know, it's, you sort of mentioned it earlier, you know, this idea of relocating communities like was done in Grantham after the 2011 floods and has been done historically with other towns, you know, versus designed solutions like, you know, freeboard homes, which is like the old Queensland design where, you know, the understory may flood, but, you know, the, the upper story is built above the flood level. So how do you make decisions around relocation versus design? And then what other mitigation solutions are available and, and how do we make sure mitigation doesn't fail when rainfall and volumes exceed what we've modelled or predicted? Mm. I guess so, like really like relocation uh, really is the key if you live in the river floodplain areas that are um, highly susceptible and obviously that, that's it's an ideal outcome and it, and relocation is a better solution for places outside of like you know a CBD area like Brisbane like much further upstream but there's there's lots of it's a very complex issue um, lots of things to consider um, I think like say the relocation of Grantham is mostly a success uh, as you can imagine there's plenty of hurdles to deal with um, uh, I guess people have strong attachments to their homes and, and land. Um, yeah, some some of the family land is, is some of the land. Sorry, some of the land is is family land, which has been passed down uh, from generations. So it's it's hard to it's hard to ask someone, you know, can you just pack up and move to another place? Um, especially as 
it's a different, it's also a different environment where they're living. Um, they're going to live up higher as opposed to living in a floodplain or near a waterway, which they're probably used to. I think places within, say, like the southeast Queensland region that have uh, river flooding risks, um, I mean, ideally, you'd move them. But, you know, it's, it's impossible in places like um, the CBD regions, like, you know, like Brisbane, for example, it's given all the infrastructure and um, proximity to goods and services, work and schools and, you know, and, and especially right now, I mean, a very relevant topic is the, the cost of housing at the moment. Um, you couldn't exactly just tell someone who lives in the CBD to pick up and, and go elsewhere. Um, so in terms of, you know, freeboard house design, like a Queenslander home, uh, look, it's great for overland flow paths. It's good for some parts of the creek floodplains. You know, the industry, it bases its design off the 1% AP event, even for, like, the river. It, like, it, the problem is it doesn't guarantee no damage to property or risk to life. And it, it really is a, a rolling of the die exercise. Like, it depends and it comes down to how many more faces of the die do you want to have, you know, to take when you're taking that risk. You know, like, one of the, the common questions I always get asked is, oh, is the 1% AP plus freeboard enough to keep our house safe? And it's a hard, it's a hard question to answer as well because, like, I can say yes, but at the same time, it's, if a, you know, a, um, a 1 in 2000 year ARI or 0.05% AP, seeing, seeing as we're calling it the new ones, <laughs> we say if we, um, we, like, if, if, um, like I could say to them, why don't you build it to that level? But the problem is the uh, um, the cost involved to 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 build even higher. Is it just keep goes up more. Um, it's significantly totally. more. So structurally and, and and is the other issue that the is it true that the one percent AEP changes? Like, are we seeing because of different you know rainfall assumptions and other kind of things that go into flood modellings are we seeing those levels of our in our planning schemes kind of rising because of climate impacts and those sorts of things yes definitely actually a very good question because they're constantly changing whether it's from uh, climate change whether it's from the design rainfalls that we you know get given or adopt i guess it's it's a dynamic it's a dynamic thing that it's changing you know, as we get better results, we might go back and revise a flood study and there'll be a new 1% AEP, for example, in a catchment. So, yeah, it's, it's not a static number. And, and I think that's another thing that people think it's, it, it just stays the same forever. It doesn't. It's constantly going to change. And it's, it's an issue like we, we, we as an industry will forever face to try and figure out what's, what's the most appropriate things to design to or call the 1% AEP or, Freeboards, for example, is always a, another topic that's always getting recycled in our industry. Is it is it appropriate to like a standard freeboard in our industry is 300 mil? Is it appropriate in some areas to adopt 300 mil? And um, depending on which catch, you know, which part of the catchment you are or where you are, or yeah, it's 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 changing. It's dynamic. Um, even to be honest, like as us as the professionals, we we struggle to keep up with with all the different things that we need to learn and. And understand, I think. Um, so it's, it, as you can appreciate, it's probably hard for us to even communicate that back out to the public. 
totally. Look, I'm I'm just conscious of time, and I had a bunch of other questions that I really wanted to ask you, but we're just not going to get. Yeah. Look, I I really thank you for your time, Martin. I I know this is a really tough topic to to discuss, and yeah. you know I think yeah. you've you've done your absolute best to to make it as easily understandable to all our listeners, and it. It's hard, and and it, but it's something that we're going to have to learn to live with. And so I think we all need to do our bit to understand flooding just that little bit better. Yeah, definitely. And feel free to hit me up for a part two. I think we can keep talking about this till the cows come home. <laughs> totally, totally. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you, Nicole. And thank you for tuning into the Hustle and Bustle podcast this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and a review so that others find out about this episode and that I can keep bringing you future episodes. You can follow the show on Instagram, hustle underscore bustle underscore podcast and LinkedIn too. That's all from this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.